You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. This is Alyssa Campbell, Corporate and Private Equity Partner at McGuire Woods in Chicago. Thank you for tuning in today to Across the Table. In this episode, we're sharing a discussion first published as an episode of McGuire Woods' Deal by Deal podcast. This is a discussion between my partners, corporate and private equity focus Greg Hover and antitrust expert Holden Brooks regarding recent antitrust updates and enforcement actions, including commentary on the latest developments on Federal Trade Commission non-compete proposed rulemaking and the timeline for implementation of the proposed rule, a summary of market headwinds in private equity with a particular focus on healthcare private equity stemming from recent FTC enforcement actions, including the allegations summarized by the FTC in its complaint against private equity investment company Welsh Carson and U.S. Anesthesia Partners regarding Welsh Carson's roll-up strategy for U.S. Anesthesia, and providing insight on realistic and effective antitrust policy and procedures to implement at private equity funds portfolio companies, and other market participants utilizing roll-up strategy investing. Thanks again for tuning in, and without further ado, here are Greg and Holden. Hello, and welcome to Deal by Deal, a podcast for independent sponsors and other private equity investors. My name is Greg Hover, M&A partner at McGuire Woods in the Chicago office. And happy to be hosting this episode together with my partner, Holden Brooks, who is an antitrust partner at McGuire Woods. And now a with this episode, she will be a recurring guest on Deal by Deal. So Holden, welcome. Good to have you. Great to be here. Really great to be here. And I think we're going to be covering some ground that I've been I've been talking a lot about recently. So looking forward to talking about it with you. Good, 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 good. Holden, do you want to give a really brief overview of, of what you do here at McGuire Woods? Sure. So I am a partner in the antitrust group at McGuire Woods in our Chicago office. I do criminal antitrust. I do civil litigation antitrust. I do compliance counseling in the antitrust area. I do merger work and Hart Scott Rodino filings, et cetera. I'm a true generalist when it comes to antitrust. But I would say about 75 to 90% of what I've done over the last decade or so has been in the, in the healthcare space. Um, so that's my, that's my niche. But um, uh, really looking forward to talking about the transactional space today with you. Great, great. Good deal. Thanks, Holden. We, we appreciate your time. You are definitely one of the leaders nationwide on antitrust matters affecting the middle market, private equity investments in the healthcare space and otherwise. So it's really great to have your insights here on this one. So I think the title of this episode, broadly speaking, can be Antitrust Considerations for Private Equity Investors. And we will call this the fall 2023 edition of that. So we're just going to try to touch on a couple timely themes that investors should be thinking about out there in the middle market. And I think interestingly, in the in the lower middle market. But before we jump into that, last time you were on Holden, we talked quite a bit about the FTC 
and some of their statements and positions on non-compete agreements as they relate to employees and, and otherwise, those are an important tool for deal makers, obviously. Any update on that front? I have to say, not much of an update right now. As you might recall, Greg, we spent a lot of time talking to clients last year who were very, or earlier this year, who were very concerned about the impact on the FTC's proposed rule to ban the majority of non-compete agreements in the employment context. Since then, the FTC has indicated that the proposed rule probably won't be finalized or certainly won't be in effect until sometime in probably Q1, Q2 of 2024. So that at the federal level, the non-compete action has kind of been very low level. But my understanding is that there are many states now that have sort of picked up that baton and run with it and that folks really do need to be consulting with Employment Council to understand what states have their own non-compete bans and, and laws, et cetera, in place, which, which may frankly have the same effect in a lot of ways as that proposed federal rule. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. That's a helpful update that there hasn't been any major developments on the federal front. So our prior podcast might be good listening still if people are interested in the topic of non-competes, but also holding good good point to always check with your you know attorney as far as whether there's state restrictions on non-competes and probably even more so given the environment. Great. Well, so one of the main reasons, Holden, we thought it'd be a good idea to chat, you know, here in late October is the recent case that came out, the FTC versus U.S. Anesthesia Partners and and Welsh Carson. I believe it's just the complaint that's come out there. That's a case that focuses in the healthcare industry specifically. And I think it's, again, kind of made waves among our private equity group because we have a heavy focus in healthcare. But I think it's interesting for, you know, investors who even aren't doing healthcare deals who are doing kind of a buy and build strategy in specific markets, et cetera. So I'm looking forward to getting your views on that complaint. But before we before we dive in there, maybe it's helpful to take a step way back and, you know, just get the overall framework of there's deals that exceed 111 million or so, right, that require a filing, you know, with the FTC to get antitrust clearance. And there's various other, that's very much shorthand. But if you're in that range or above, you need to be speaking with a, with a lawyer like yourself to make sure that you're navigating that filing process. But my understanding is that you know, this new case involves transactions that are smaller in size than that, you know, threshold. And so is that the case? And then, you know, how should people be thinking about deals that maybe, frankly, you know, a, an M&A lawyer might look at a deal and see it's okay, this is a $40 million deal. I don't really need to call my antitrust partner. Is that still the case? Or how do people think about these deals under the those bright line thresholds? So great question, and I have a lot to say about it. As you said, the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act imposes a requirement of a pre-close filing 
for deals that are valued above 111.4 million and meet a bunch of other criteria as well. So just because you're at or above that valuation threshold doesn't mean you necessarily have to file, but it is important to have a conversation with a qualified antitrust attorney to to figure out whether that filing obligation exists. And, you know, one thing I want to say about that HSR process is that there were new HSR rules that were proposed over the summer. So the Federal Trade Commission took a look at the HSR form and the rules and, you know, what do you have to give to the Federal Trade Commission when you're filing an HSR, et cetera. And they decided that they needed to be changed and that the amount of information and the kind of information that you need to submit with an HSR filing should be changed. And one of the areas, again, in this proposed rule, which is not finalized yet, that should be of interest to people who do smaller deals is that there's an obligation to disclose deals that you have undertaken both on the sell side and on the buy side over the past few years in a particular segment. So let's say that you're buying a widget manufacturer and it happens to be over $111.4 million, but you've spent the past five years amassing all the other widget manufacturers for amounts below $111.4 million. They want to know about that, what's essentially a roll-up strategy or serial acquisition strategy. So that is one way that I think it's very likely that this kind of roll-up activity is going to come to the attention of the antitrust regulators in the context of a, of a single HSR filing. The other thing I think people need to pay attention to who generally do smaller deals is that even if you are not doing an HSR reportable deal, your deal is still subject to investigation. There's nothing that prevents the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice from investigating your deal pre-close or post-close if they get a tip or you know some kind of information that leads them to believe that they need to investigate. And one thing that both the Federal Trade Commission and DOJ have both said is that their eyes are on, you know, private equity firms in particular who are engaging in roll-up strategies. So I don't think it's beyond the pale to think that we will see, you know, if FTC and DOJ are to be believed, that we will see more and more of these investigations, pre-close and post-close, of serial small deals in the same sector, potentially in the same geographic market, if there are antitrust concerns that those deals present. Just stopping there, that I mean, that's really interesting. I don't know that you've seen something like that, but I mean, how would that actually look if uh, the FTC or the DOJ would, would get a tip about a roll-up strategy? I mean, would that be just kind of, you'd get some letters from the DOJ, you think, you're saying it could be pre-closing or post-closing? Yeah. So what would happen there is that you would get something called a civil investigative demand, probably. Maybe they would start off with approaching you for some voluntary disclosure of relevant information. But they do have the power to issue these civil investigative demands that are like subpoenas. And they are, you know, compulsory process. You need to put in place a document hold. You have obligations to turnover data, documents, et cetera, depending on what the specifications call for. And 
also subject maybe some employees to sort of deposition like interviews, et cetera. And usually at the same time, they're also asking other stakeholders in the market, like your competitors, your customers, your suppliers, et cetera, to, to also weigh in and disclose information that would be pertinent to investigating, investigating a deal. So it definitely happens. It's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the pieces of advice we give to clients is even if you're not going to have to file HSR, even if your deal closes, you're going to want to maintain a level of antitrust awareness in your documents and your with respect to your business strategies to not, you know, immediately raise prices or take other actions that harm competition because other people in the market know how to dial up the Federal Trade Commission or DOJ, drop a dime, suggest that they that they investigate. And again, they always have that power. But that's how it would unfold. You would probably get a civil investigative demand and then be off to the races for that investigation. Got it. Okay. A couple follow-up questions here. So what is the DOJ looking for? And I guess I don't want to scare people away from doing add-on deals, right? I mean, I don't think we're expecting a tsunami of these type of investigations, right? It's probably just something to be, to increase your awareness on. But I assume that, you know, if, if your widget company is in a fragmented market in a geography and you have 5% of the market and you're acquiring an additional 3% of the market, that's not going to be something that's going to raise alarm bells. But what is the DOJ looking for? I assume it's it's consolidation of competitors in a certain geography that that harms consumers. Are those the couple bullet points of, of add-on strategies that are higher risk than others? Yeah. And I think it's a, that's a really important point to make, which is that if you are aggregating small market shares in a way that is not giving you some kind of outsized power, right? The power to raise prices without being concerned about losing market share, right? The power to, you know, lower wages. If this is an, an area where competition among employers has an impact on your business, they are looking at that labor side of thing too. If there's so much competition on the sell side and on the employer side that you're not going to be able to incur uh, or impose the kinds of competitive harms that DOJ is worried about, you're not going to end up on the their radar screen. This is not a situation where any aggregation of market share is going to result in harm. I think the U.S. Anesthesia Partners case is a great sort of illustration of what types of strategies and what types of conduct are going to make it more likely that you'll end up on a regulator's radar screen. Again, if you believe the complaint, because as you noted, it's really just the complaint that's been filed in that case. There was a tremendous amount of market share based on the allegations that over time gave U.S. anesthesia partners the leverage to raise prices significantly above what DOJ considered to be a competitive level. And there was a chorus of people who were ready to complain about that as well. The payers and other people in the market all could make out a pretty good case for how they were harmed. And as you say, you know, consumers and patients were harmed. So I think that that 
U.S. anesthesia partners case really is a useful benchmark to look at. It is the type of conduct that is going to land you on a radar when it is at that level, when there is a very clear effect on competition and a very clear negative effect on price, efficiency, quality, all the other things that we like to think competition improves. Great. Maybe we do just kind of walk through that case. You know, I assume it's public record so we can go through a little bit of the facts just to like illustrate the market power and some of the smoking guns or the bad acts that people really need to watch out for out there. Because again, I think it's interesting to think about what are the market share dynamics that put you on the radar in the first place? What are some of the industries that maybe, you know, the DOJ is looking at more closely than others? It sounds like healthcare is one of them. And then what are the actual kind of like bad acts and emails and messages and things that can get you into hot water once once the DOJ is kind of zeroed in on your market share and your industry and is, is looking at your platform, you know, what are kind of some of the, the bad acts there? So maybe we can just kind of talk through some of those topics as it, as it relates to this case, if that works. Sure. And let me just also point out another couple of sort of what I'll just call extraordinary points about the U.S. Anesthesia Partners case as well. Number one, I think that people have become aware of this litigation and have assumed that the Federal Trade Commission got a whiff of this roll-up strategy and, you know, like went, marched into federal court and filed a complaint. In fact, this story is, is much longer than that. FTC has been investigating this company and this conduct for quite a while. The company itself disclosed that publicly, I think, two years ago, one, two years ago at this point in time. But by the time the FTC files its complaint in September, it really is able to come at U.S. anesthesia partners with what we call sort of a kitchen sink approach with respect to these antitrust claims. So this is a civil enforcement action in federal court in Texas. And the allegations are made that this is a monopolization problem. This is a violation of Section 2 of the Federal Sherman Act. It is a violation of Section 7 of the Clayton Act and Section 5 of the FTC Act based on the, you know, sort of acquisition conduct. And there was sort of a general anti-competitive course of conduct to obtain price increases as a result of having made these acquisitions. So, you know, building up enough market power again, to, as I said before, to be able to raise prices without worrying about, you know, losing too much market share. So this platform was a group of anesthesiologists and they would go into hospitals and perform anesthesiology. And then they like by combining together, they were able to increase their rates well beyond what others were charging. What just it would be interesting to just hear kind of like what what was the pricing issue, right? Yeah. So what it is is that they they you know again according to the complaint, right? And that we all just need to be able to say that this is this <laughs> these are allegations. The facts are maybe cherry picked as they are in any complaint, but according to the complaint, U.S. Anesthesia Partners got to the point where it controlled nearly sixty percent of hospital anesthesia costs in Texas, the state, like looking at the state as a whole and was managing wow. 43% of the cases. Right. So as I was saying before, this is a pretty sort of extreme level, 
right? It was six times larger, when you just look at their case volume, it was six times larger than the next group in Dallas, for instance, right? So, Mm -hmm. and they were through their managed care strategy because of how their contracts were phrased and constructed, et cetera, they were able to basically fold in every new group that they acquired and put them onto contracts which were in place that had higher rates. So if you were a, you know, a payer who was getting hospital anesthesia services from group A at, you know, I'm just going to say like 102% of Medicare, all of a sudden they become part of USAP and your cost for those same services could could go up by, you know, several multiples. So mm-hmm. it was and in addition to that, you know, the other thing I think is instructive about this complaint is that this strategy was pretty much laid out in normal course documents that, you know, not only at the U.S. anesthesia partners level, but also at the private equity sponsor level as well. They were very, you know, the, the complaint uses very dramatic language, talks about, you know, like from their lofty perch on Park Avenue in New York, you know, this <laughs> private equity saw an opportunity to extract more money out of the anesthesia patients in Texas, et cetera, et cetera. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the other thing that put this on the radar screen for the FTC, I think, and made an attractive case is that there seems to be a lot of documents that were available to them, you know, that they could cite in order to, to make their case. So we'll see what else comes out in discovery, but at least for purposes of composing their complaint, there were a lot of attractive bad documents at the PE sponsor level and at the at the practice level. Got it. Got it. And that probably rolls into, you know, what are what are the takeaways? And as you noted, I mean, this is just a complaint. The language is very colorful in the complaint from the FTC. And we'll need to see where all of this shakes out, right? And what the facts really were. But, you know, takeaways from the case for PE investors engaged in roll-up strategies. It sounds like documents that talk specifically about raising prices and and using market power in nefarious and the FTC's views ways. What kind of advice are we giving to clients coming out of this case? Well, I mean, I think the first piece of advice that we're giving to clients is, you know, be realistic about assessing your own conduct, right? I think a lot of clients are very concerned that they have been pursuing strategies, which are now going to put them in the crosshairs of an antitrust regulator. And again, I think the U.S. Anesthesia Partners case is a pretty extreme case if the complaint is to be believed. So put your own conduct in, you know, context. I don't think that this is going to be the start of a tsunami of these cases against people who are pursuing good faith business strategies to, you know, build scale and pursue other tried and true strategies to create viable, successful businesses. But I do think that sort of the time has come to really weave antitrust in to your business practices in a way that is not obtrusive, but is but is just smart, right? I always say there's tremendous return on investment for taking small steps to weave antitrust awareness and compliance into how you do business. So, you know, I think at the front end, I think it's really good to have an awareness when you're looking at pipeline. 
if you have an opportunity to take your capital and put it into a place, a new platform or like a business related to an existing platform, but maybe in a geography where you don't already have market share, like, you know, being able to figure out whether there's a strategy to move forward with deals in a way that has, that can minimize antitrust risk instead of sort of running headlong into a buzz, an antitrust buzzsaw. Mm -hmm. So at the pipeline stage, I think it's very smart to have that awareness. I think that there's almost no higher return on investment than when you are composing management decks, communications, other core documents that relate to your acquisition strategy to just be precise and accurate, right? It's not about like, don't use this word, don't use that word, like hide the ball, et cetera. It's not about hiding the ball. It's about not using sloppy, inflammatory language that is going to land in a very negative way if it is ever reviewed by a state attorney general, the Federal Trade Commission or DOJ. So being able to get your point across in a way that does not create undue antitrust risk is also a very prudent thing to do at this point in time. And it doesn't take much. It takes a little bit of education for your, of your BD teams and your leadership, et cetera, to understand how to have a productive discussion about opportunities and potential deals without creating undue risk. That's a great point. Just to highlight kind of the specific documents that might be good candidates for that type of review for deals that I work on, it would be, you know, for funds, anything that goes in front of the investment committee are usually pretty formal materials for independent sponsors, you know, due diligence summaries or investor decks describing the transaction. Those things Holden and her team can take a very quick look at and spot those inflammatory type of statements pretty quickly. And, and that could be very helpful. Well, I just want to add one other kind of document to your list there, and that is third-party consultant documents. These are sort of notorious. Mm -hmm. If they end up on the desk of a regulator, you can be stuck having to answer for language that a third-party consultant that you hired used, even if, frankly, it doesn't even reflect your company's perspective of the market or competitive dynamics, et cetera. And so that's the other like high ROI antitrust investment to make at the beginning of a process, which is make sure that your consultants are on board with your goals in terms of avoiding inflammatory language, imprecise language, sloppy language that describes competition, et cetera. So again, can be handled very easily, 15, 20 minute call with a consultant before they go off and do whatever market study they're going to do goes a long way. Great. Great. Well, Holden, the time really flew by on this one. It was really interesting chatting with you as always. Really appreciate it. You know, if, if listeners have more questions, definitely reach out to Holden or to me. And again, we're not trying to scare anyone out of doing add-on strategies whatsoever. The, those are viable and we work on those all the time. And I think it is really the edge and kind of extreme cases that you know, if any of these bullet points we talked about on this podcast are applicable to something you're doing, I mean, just just keep it on your radar that it is a more heightened scrutiny environment. Uh, Holden, any any final parting shots for the the listeners? I just want to just 
reiterate what you just said. This is this should not be a a super scary time for people who are again pursuing legitimate strategies for building great businesses. But it is a good maybe moment to pause and figure out whether there are steps you can take to minimize the antitrust risk that you may face face in, in the future. And we're happy to help with that. Awesome. Thanks again so much for your time, Holden. Always great to talk with you. You too, Greg. Take care. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.